Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. Lupe Castaneda is the owner of Behavior Pathways, LLC. He's been in the ABA field for 30 years and a BCBA since 2002. He's owned two ABA practices and currently works full-time as a BCBA in the schools while maintaining a private practice. He's also the founder of the ABA Clinic and Practice Owners LinkedIn group, which is almost 5,000 members strong. And he helped start a local group for behaviorists, which is now a SIG, for the Texas Association for Behavior Analysis. He shares his enthusiasm for our field as an adjunct instructor at a local university. Lupe, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is quite an honor. Thanks, Jonathan. Hey, the, the honor is all mine, Lupe. And so for those of you who are who are on our YouTube channel, you got to see Lupe's shirt. It literally is just this red shirt, screaming fire engine red, and in white letters written across his chest, it says, behave. Is there a story behind this shirt, Lupe? Oh, yeah, there certainly is. I kind of borrowed this shirt, uh, you know, this concept uh, from about uh, 15, 20 years ago, attending at a conference, uh, a Texaba conference, Texas Association for Behavior Analysis in, in the Dallas area. And so um, one of the SIGs that were actually the University of North Texas, where I, you know, uh, got my training, they were selling shirts. They were green, you know, the green shirts with behave on it. I said, I like that shirt. I bought one that year and I think I wore it for about five or six years until I could no longer wear it. Right. But it has other meanings as well. I think it has it's useful in, in, in some regards. I wear it out in public and, it, you know, I find it as a way to strike up a conversation. Hey, what is this? You know, and of course, I'll get some comments and so forth. I'll usually follow by, you know, hey, my wife makes me wear this before every time I go out, you know, in public. So but um, really, the, the shirt on the back of the shirt it says behavior analyst and then my website. And the weird, the reason I wear that out in public when I'm with a client, as you can imagine, is that, hey, sometimes our clients, you know, have some difficulty uh, with challenging behaviors out in public. And then they see this guy, this man, maybe with a parent and so forth, uh, uh, trying to deal with the situation that is occurring at that time. So get some really awful looks, you know, some whispers. And even in some cases, uh, um, uh, potential, you know, dangerous situations. So I love this. It gets, you know, it, it gets to the point behave, but on the back, it does serve a purpose behavior therapist, behavior analyst is what it says. You know, so that's the story uh, behind that. I think was it, was it Mike Myers in one of his skits in Saturday night live or, um, you know, Austin powers or what it's like the, Oh, behave. And there's yeah, like that connotation that goes through my mind, but you know what the other connotation I, until I got into the field over 10 years ago, I had no idea that what we do as human beings, every second of every minute of every day, we behave, we engage in behavior. I, yes. I mean, even speaking is a verbal behavior. I had no idea. And so I, I, I just, I love that you're helping the rest of the world understand that we're all behaving. <laughs> And in whatever way that is, no judgment, but we're behaving, right? And our behavior can be shaped. Respond, but to me, you know, behave sounds cool. And I may take a, take you up on that Mike Myers, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, episode there. So, yeah, that'll be my next round of shirts. 
Nice. I love it. But, you know, Lupe, you started your career as an adapted physical education specialist um, in, in Arlington, Texas ISD. And, and I mean, you were a PE teacher for kiddos with disabilities. And that, I mean, that's just, I'm floored. And that that's extraordinary, man. And, and I, can you share like, a story about a kiddo you worked with way back when? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember it was actually twins, right? So I got to serve them uh, in the capacity of adapted PE um uh in school and i served them when they were you know probably four years old and i got to see them all the way through graduation now that's pretty awesome you know to see that and these were these were the coolest twin boys ever you know and they were severely impacted by their disability by their autism and so forth but you know this ape we started off with that right and of course ape is also associated with Special Olympics. And then you have these cool special uh, uh, baseball leagues and soccer leagues. So these kids went on, these twins went on to play not only in Special Olympics, but they participated throughout their educational career in baseball and in, uh, uh, and in soccer as well as uh, Special Olympics. I would certainly encourage any BCBA or anyone in our field to just go do that. I did it for about six or seven years, you know, and uh, it was the best experiences, you know, uh, ever. And one thing is that I did publish research in that area and it was a, a qualitative study and I interviewed parents of kids with uh, disabilities and asked them basically, how does it feel to have your kid participate in a sport? Did you ever think about, you know, that your kid would be able to participate in a sport? And so uh, that was a really nice for me uh, opportunity to get to know families, collaborate with families and see the families with their kids in these community settings and then watch the smile on not only the kids faces, the smiles and the tears from the families. You know, so that was a wonderful experience that I did early in my career. And I will never, ever regret doing that. Wow. So what was the what was parents answer to how does it feel to have your kid participate in sports? Oh, they would have never thought they this did not exist. This was, about, you know, there were a couple of uh, variations of the baseball uh, challenger. Baseball is the one that was one of the original that is associated with Little League Baseball. Right. So I taught I mean, I coached as an undergrad Little League Baseball and I said, hey, that's a cool I know this sport. Why not take this to the kids uh, out, you know, with uh, with disabilities that don't have these opportunities. But the the biggest comments from the parents where I never would have believed my child had an opportunity like this. And then, of course, we did soccer as well. So uh, very powerful. And that was very influential in my career. And, you know, leading into I was here. Here I was this APE fresh out of school, uh, adaptive PE specialist. And then I started getting kiddos uh, on the spectrum. Right. You know, severe, um, uh, severely impacted by their autism or other disabilities. And it's like, man, there's got to be a way, a better way to teach these kids other than having lots of fun, which, you know, then naturally that's what I do with the kids. But I had to find more effective ways to teach those kids, have them, you know, to be able to sit and wait for a turn and, you know, participate in group. I said, there's got to be a way. I didn't learn that as an undergrad in special ed or PE. Right. So that's what I discovered after I finished my master's there. I discovered uh, the uh, behavior analysis department at UNT just down the road from, you know, Texas Women's where I got my master's, you know. And once I started that coursework, I, it's like, there you go. That's the secret sauce right there. This is the way I need to be able to uh, to, to teach these kids effectively. Oh, so and give them, these, 
these these like life changing experiences. That's amazing, Lupe. You know, I um I'm uh I I volunteer for all my kids' teams as a coach. I call myself um an ass coach, assistant coach. <laughs> so uh, I have all the time yeah. to, to 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 do all the planning and everything that comes with it. But but one of the things that I'm doing this upcoming winter is volunteering um with an adaptive sports um a special olympics feeder program yeah. in colorado with kids and it, it's actually really cool because i mean not only do they do they get to learn um skiing but they actually pair up with a typically developing kiddo so yeah. one, one of the kids i'm going to work with has down syndrome and um and um and i want to get my kids involved as sort of the you know the neurotypical um but it just yeah. feels that i mean that's part of the way of yes let's let's work with and support kiddos with idd but let's also reshape our world Right. And, right. and, and make our yeah. world understand that like we can adapt the same, like that feels important to me. I, you know, you, you use the term a bit, um, compassionate care. Um, and you and I both share like a deep and resonating passion for this idea of compassionate care. And, and, and there's, there's a specific term actually that, that, um, I've heard you describe around bi-directional relationships with families. What right. do you mean by that? Yeah, well, actually, I borrowed that term from, of course, uh, LeBlanc Sellers and Eli's book, right? The uh, meaningful relationships, uh, support, uh, sustaining meaningful relationships uh, as a supervisor and mentor. Uh, so I saw that and they talked about, you know, bi-directional feedback, meaning that, hey, you know, we should not as behavior analysts, I think, you know, and this is and my behavior has been shaped over the years by interacting with people, with parents and with teachers from other fields and professionals from other fields and so forth. Bi-directional, bi-directional relationship, the way that I interpret it is that, hey, you know, I'm not the expert. You're the expert for your child. Yes, I can guide you and assist you in, in, in coming up with a plan, right, for uh, uh, to be most effective uh, for your child, uh, according, uh, you know, and um I accept, I certainly welcome feedback from the parents and from uh, uh, others, you know, and, and the feedback that I'll provide to parents or other professionals is like, okay, I understand what you're trying to say. And then I'll try to be, um, I'll try to explain it behaviorally, what is happening in plain English terms as well. You know, so um, bi-directional feedback, even the and the supervisory um, uh, relationship, I think is extremely important I think we need to demonstrate our vulnerability to our trainees, right? Our supervisees. I think, you know, hey, we're not perfect, man. I've made many mistakes over the years. But uh, one thing in particular that I remember, another story, sorry, but uh, I've got a lot of stories over the years, but I was a Special Olympics coach, right? I became the head Special Olympics uh, coach for my first district. And uh, here I am. We are, we're preparing. I've got about 50, 60 kids that I've got to enter for specific um, events in the, you know, the annual local Special Olympics. So here I am thinking, OK, I'm just going to make all these decisions myself. And there was one kid in particular I remember, you know, and I worked with her um, and uh, in APE and so forth. And I realized I learned quickly that she suffers from a seizure disorder. So I'm thinking, mm. you know, in the past, I'm thinking, well, you know, looking up. They had um, entered her in the 100 meter dash. And here I am thinking, man, 100 meter dash in this heat. I'm really concerned about that. So I entered in the 50 meter dash. A couple of days later, when it was time, when we announced uh, the events that the, the children would be participating in, I got a call from a parent, you know, thinking, you know, and they were basically saying, how dare you 
you know, do this. I tried to explain, I was concerned about the child safety, safety, but the parent, you know, old me, the old old me thinking I'm the expert. I know these kids, I know what's right for them. No, it was the parent, you know, uh, you know, indicated, look, she's been participating in the hundred meter dash for the last four or five years. Why are you going to, you know, uh, why are you going to downgrade her basically to a 50 meter dash? And, um, that I think is part, that is how some of my, a lot of my behavior did get shaped by those people that I interacted with. But I think that's a excellent example of making sure that we do have this bi-directional relationship with others, you know, whether they be a parents, whether they even be the client themselves, if they're able to communicate that to us, right? But especially other professionals, especially nowadays, I think. But that's just a, a clear example and that, I, my behavior, like I said, has been shaped over the years. But at the same time, you talk about compassionate care, right? That's a hot topic in our field right now. And I truly do think we need to adhere to that. We need to learn about that, to ask questions, and then to uh, definitely support that bi-directional uh, feedback. Mm. It's spoken with such true wisdom, especially as you describe like the humility, right, of... Um of uh, listening to parents, getting that bi-directional feedback, and then using that to shape your behavior. And that's so important in turn to show to supervisees, right? And to build that. And, and, and tell me, because you, you supervise um, aspiring BCBAs at UNT, University of North Texas, um, like and elsewhere. It, it, like, what is the biggest gap that you see now in BCBA education and, and supervision experience that you intentionally try to fill as a supervisor? Yeah, I think the biggest gap is just time, lack of time, lack of opportunities. I do um, uh, supervise uh, some individuals from uh, University of Texas, uh, San Antonio, about to start with Texas A&M San Antonio, bringing them into the school system, right? And so there is just a limited amount of time. And I think, you know, several of the researchers in our field, like LeBlanc et al. and, you know, uh, Ellie Kazimi, some of the, the big names in our field really do talk about that. How do you fit all of what they need into a program, a master's program, right? So uh, one of the things that I see is um, uh, lack of opportunities. I know that uh, one of the universities that I do take in, that I do work with uh, their particular students or grad students, they have a rotation system, kind of like clinicals, you know, where mm -hmm. uh, a medical professional would do rotations. Mm -hmm. So they do a clinical rotation, they do an in-home rotation, they do a school rotation, you know, I, I think that is probably what needs to be done. Uh, and in fact, any supervising, any trainee that I'm supervising, I'm encouraging them, hey, you're going to get this school, uh, school's per, uh, perspective. But I also encourage them to go look for a provider, maybe in a clinic, maybe that provides in-home services or community-based services and so forth. I highly encourage them to seek other opportunities. So I think maybe the lack of opportunities in different settings, even though that is what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to provide different experiences for our uh, trainees. And um, often, you know, whether the, if they're working full-time in a clinical setting or even in an in-home setting with one provider, that's all they're getting, right? They're getting great supervision there, but they're not exposed to the school setting or to the community setting or what have you. And I think that's so critical in the development of any new BCBAs. I know I've got from experiences, I've got multiple uh, experiences in various settings and with various supervisors, colleagues, et cetera. So that I think was uh, uh, definitely fundamental uh, for me to learn about 
ABA in the various settings. So I think that's the biggest concern, just the time to provide those additional settings, those varied settings. Yeah, I mean, because we we talk all the time as a field about generalization for our kiddos, right? So I, the exact same thing, to your point, applies to generalization uh, and delivering services across different settings. Well, I, the other thing that you know that strikes me as you describe this, it's unnatural instinct to lean into collaboration in our field. Now, as human beings, we lean into it, but our field has just felt like you know, there's um, for whatever set of reasons, but um, it's 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 felt unnatural to lean into collaboration, and yet you've done just that. And in getting to know you, I, I've seen that. And I, I mean, look no further than the LinkedIn group you started, right? With 5,000 members, the ABA Clinic and Practice Owners. Like what was a seminal experience in your life, Lupe, that, that taught you the importance of collaboration? Well, you know, uh, starting off in the school district, you know, and going to school at UNT while I was working full-time as an APE specialist, right? Um, I started working with kids with the, on the spectrum. And, you know, in fact, I kind of, you know, I worked myself into a position, one of the first positions as a full-time BCBA in a school system in, in Texas, right? Uh, only because I had started the, uh, the coursework at UNT. So I was on the school district side. I started attending ARD meetings, IEP meetings is what they're uh, typically called across the country. But uh, then I was on one side of the table, the district side of the table. And then, of course, you'd have a BCBA. Sometimes it was one of my colleagues mm -hmm. as the family advocate. Now, talking about, you know, uh, an uncomfortable situation, especially if it was an uncomfortable situation, you know, with the school district or the parents, you know, and so forth, that will teach you right away about collaboration right there. Because these are my colleagues. Some of them were my classmates, you know. So I took it upon myself from the very beginning. Okay, I've got classmates that were a year you know, ahead of me in a different cohort and so forth. I'm going to bring you guys into my district to help me with training. I'm learning at the same time. We are providing an excellent service for the teacher staff training uh, and even for the students and so forth, for the children. Um, I think from that very beginning, those first years of sitting on one side of the table uh, and the school side of the table and then just say, you know what? You guys come on in. I invite you because a lot of times, you know, across the country, school systems have difficulty. Um, they have difficulty collaborating with private therapists, right? Especially mm. behavior analysts. Uh, part of that is our fault, right? But still, I think that uh, that helped me realize, like, man, I'm going to see this guy in class next week. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be <laughs> that person totally defending everything that one party does versus another. So, you know, I think that was a good early learning experience. And from there, I learned to collaborate because eventually after I left the school system, I was on the other side of the table as an advocate for the families. And uh, and the way I approached that based on my experiences from the school perspective is I was I did not consider myself an expert. Right. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. I know behavior an uh, analysis, of course. But, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, because now I'm on the other side of the table, instead of coming in as the expert model, which we used to do years ago, um, uh, we're coming in and now we're at the collaboration model. You know, I've done that ever since I've been to probably after that first district, I've been to three other districts and consult with others, uh, uh, with many others. And so if I'm, you know, currently right now, I really, if I learn that one of my students has a BCBA, you know, uh, and receiving an ABA services privately, I'm going to invite that person to come to come meet with us. How can we help this kid 
generalize all those skills that he's learning in your clinic or in your in-home program. We need to work on generalization into the schools. So immediately I'm inviting, definitely. And I think that is what has worked for me over the last 30 years. Mm. Let's double click on that, Lupe, because in a recent conversation you and I had, you you gave me this light bulb moment for that for like 15 years of a child's life, the school is actually the natural environment. So tell me more about how how like how can ABA providers better work with schools and access this natural environment? I think that relationship, you know, and I, I would hope, I know around here in our, the San Antonio area where I live, I, we're seeing more and more opportunities for BCBAs. There are, you know, at least three openings right now in the San Antonio area with different districts. But, you know, I would I would hope that we can um, work, you know, consider the child when we're planning for this child, what is going to be uh, best for this child? I mean, as recently as, you know, just a few weeks ago, I was, you know, I was a private, you know, I, pro I provide some private consultation for families and for a clinic, of course. And then, you know, they, you know, school starting. So we had to talk to school personnel and we took it like, hey, let's just open up a discussion. How are we going to help this particular kid uh, be successful in your area? You know, mm -hmm. for us as BCBAs in the private sector, I, I would invite you, you know, if you know there's a BCBA, communicate, contact that BCBA, reach out that BCBA. And even if there isn't a BCBA, reach out to the, you know, special ed administrators, to any administrators on the campus and so forth. Reach out to them and say, hey, you know, we're working with, uh, you know, little Johnny, you know, 25 hours a week. He's been coming to us for about six months. We've seen some great gains, but we'd like to see him, uh, you know, uh, generalize those skills, you know, mm -hmm. and um, without us dictating that. It's more of an invitation. Mm. I'd like to collaborate with you. What are you guys doing there? What can we do in the home environment or in the clinic also that uh, will benefit our child so that we know our clients, so that we know uh, what to work on for generalization purposes? You know, earlier today, I was uh, where we've got um, part of the requirements for Texas Association, uh, Educational Association is to consider what's called in-home training for a child diagnosed with autism in the schools. And well, they look into one of their critical um, uh, goals for that in-home training parent uh, program is to generalize skills from the school to the home, from the school uh, from the home to the school, from the school to the, uh, the community, the community to the school. So it's you know uh, varied across all settings, and the purpose is to help that child and the family learn how to help teach that kid generalize those skills across all settings. So that's built into what we do here uh, in the Texas Education Agency, you know, mm. but uh, I would I would invite once again, private practitioners to reach out to your schools, you know, and not just being, not just, I guess, invite yourselves for the purposes of sharing your expertise, right? So uh, that's the way I think can be uh, most beneficial for the family, the school, and especially the child. Wow, I, I love that. The whole idea is like, yeah, don't just pick up the phone, call a special ed director and say, hey, I'm a BCBA and I've got this expertise. You want me to do a training for you? Which is almost, right. I, I, I yeah. totally appreciate where like that, that could be perceived as, oh, I'm better than you are. Is there like a secret handshake or something with a special ed director outside of just the clearly, like I love how you put it, 
um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to collaborate with you. I invite you, like, can we think about how to serve this child? But is there a secret handshake that really, that, that you found really works in getting, uh, getting special ed directors ears? I think starting off uh, maybe with a teacher, right? Because we don't want to mm -hmm. overstep, you know, the teacher. She's the one that he or she is the one that um, work with this child in various settings in the school system um, daily, several hours per day. So I think reaching out to the teacher and then ultimately, you know, the teacher, depending on how you approach that as a private uh, uh, BCBA, um, that teacher, depending on what kind of a relationship you will um, you establish early on, that teacher will be an advocate for ABA services. And so mm. they'll go on to their special ed administrators and ultimately to uh, some of the you know special ed directors. And it's like, hey, this training sounds great. I think you know, not only me and my staff would benefit from it, but I think there are spe other special ed teachers that could benefit from it, as, uh, from it as well, you know. So I think that's, you know, maybe reaching out to the teacher uh, mm. first and establishing that relationship as the first point of contact is maybe a, a way to do that. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. Element's your partner, so you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Element's a preferred partner of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you. They know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system. And Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. You're a, um, an, an army of one, an independent practitioner. Um, and um, that is, you know, you don't necessarily have a, you know, a, a whole bunch of, of, of team members and other BCBAs and RBTs that work for you. And so a lot of uh, a lot of listeners of the show are independent practitioners like you. Tell me a little bit more, like how, like over the years, have you marketed your services um, and talked to the community about what you do? Yeah, I think, you know, when I got here to San Antonio after leaving the Dallas area, uh, it was around 2006. You know, I tried to find a school-based job as a BCBA. I was already certified and had been doing that for a few years, but there weren't any available. You know, so um, I was able to uh, to contract with a couple of providers down here. There were only two providers, I think, and there was only one BCBA in San Antonio. I just came at the right time, and um, what I started realizing after you know um, leaning on the coattails of a couple of those providers that I contracted with and learning from them is that okay i need to start you know myself i was just a contractor not employee i said okay i'm getting some nice hours here but i really you know could use a few more hours to sustain a living here with especially with a family uh, and so forth so i started reaching out to nonprofit organizations and uh, we've got a couple of big nonprofit organizations here and um, the one of them already had an autism program so I just communicated with them, you know, the autism specialist at that per, at that uh, nonprofit. I said, hey, you know, do you have any opportunities? They were conducting parent training. And yeah. uh, I just said, do you have any opportunities for us to talk about ABA? Just go in there and present to the families. 
back then, once again, there weren't many ABA providers. And so families had heard of it. They had begun to heard about ABA uh, and its effectiveness and potential effectiveness for their children with autism. So that was one, I, you know, I got on the circuit, so to speak. So their parent training class, I think it was six to eight sessions. And it, it was anything from behavior to ABA, but a lot of the school-based, you know, navigating the school system was one of them. Also, they talked about resources and things like that, right? So I became part of a circuit role. I was able to provide and talk about ABA uh, every class that they had or every six-week, eight-week class that they uh, that they ran for parents. And so that was definitely one way to uh, that I marketed myself. And lo and behold, I had parents, you know, contacting me saying, hey, how do we get this funded? You know, where's the funding source for this? You know, I like what you were talking about and so forth. How can we get this? Or in some cases, parents said, hey, my school needs to learn about what you're doing, about ABA. Can you go speak to the school? So that one, you know, those that one contact there led to many others. And before you know it, I was also presenting information about ABA for related services clinics, you know, speech, mm. OT, physical therapy. How do you get a kid to cooperate with your therapy and so forth? So I made the rounds uh, doing that as well. But it all started with reaching out. And of course, I also reached out. Actually, uh, a prominent uh, pediatrician heard that I was in town, I guess, after the nonprofit workshops. Uh, parents went back to their pediatrician and say, hey, there's this guy, BCBA, uh, he's providing these services. So the, one of the pediatricians called me in for a meeting and say, you know, I can refer a lot of kids to you. What do you do? You know, and how effective are you and so forth? And how is this, how is that done? So that one opportunity created a lot of opportunities, you know, it just kind of snowballed from just reaching out to nonprofit, you know, and ultimately I worked for other nonprofits uh, as well, you know, and uh, gaining some experiences there. The whole, the, the whole idea, I was fresh out of grad school. I really wanted, I wanted to disseminate our field. You know, I, you know, I was so psyched about what we did and I realized, man, there's nothing here in San Antonio when I got here, but I really wanted to disseminate our field to the families and other people and, uh, that, that could benefit from, from what we did. So that was hugely motivating for me. You know, the, there's this book by Dr. Robert Cialdini called the psychology of persuasion. And it's a, it's a phenomenal book, whether you're a salesperson, whether you're a community outreach, whether you're a BCBA and independent practitioner. But one of the things that, um, that I took away from that book, very similar to what you described is this idea that, um, you know, don't, don't, when you meet someone for the first time to try to pitch your services or yeah. to try to do whatever you're going to do, don't have it be on your terms. Go to them first and see how you can serve them, how you can help them. Go they are. And that creates this phenomenally strong psychological like motivation then that they will have to then like return the favor. And then as you've described, you go out and kick butt doing amazing parent trainings and like word gets right. out and snowballs. But um, I, I think that's really powerful, right? Like meet people where they are and don't don't let them hear from you first when you're asking for something. Make that be the other way around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that, man. That's that is the way to do it. And and what in fact what I tell my um, you know, try to indicate to my uh, supervisees, my trainees that come into the school system, it's like, hey, you know, listen, you know, listen first to their concerns, 
but demonstrate for them what we can do. Mm. And we did this, you know, with one of my trainees did a fabulous job at the end of the uh, the semester. We got a new kid come in and uh, we needed some supports. Well, I was supporting other kids in the district, but she was a trainee. She wanted to she had experience in the schools and uh, she wanted to, to, to learn how to do this. You know, it's like, all right, cool. Before, I think within a week or two, we had the administrators asking, what is it that you guys are doing? You know, how do you do that? Can we follow you around? Can you train our staff? It's demonstrating, right? Demonstrating first, then, you know, then, then, then saying, then, then dictating what to do. It's like, no, I'm going to demonstrate first what I work with this kid, this student. So I think that's, uh, that goes along, you know, the lines of what you were just saying. Yeah. I love it. Demonstrate, right? Like the show, don't tell. Yeah, I, I refer to this like informally as like the 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 put. It, don't use the push. Use a pull, right? Don't like, don't right, push. Them, don't push A B on someone. No, like have them see it, and then they're like, "What? Wow, what is that? I want to learn more." Pull them into your orbit. I love it, Lupe. Yeah, yeah. But you know, there's in our field right now. There's there's just a lot of one way dialogue that <laughs> seems to be happening. Um, as much as I've seen, I mean, there, there, there are phenomenal people like you out there collaborating, but there's, there, there's a lot of one way dialogue too. Like, why is that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, you know, um, I think as we, you know, some of this, some of the emphasis on collaboration, compassionate care, I think that's been in the field for, a few years now, and it's only becoming more apparent, right? You know, there's some great work out there uh, by some of the leaders in our field about how how we should uh, play nice, basically, with others, right? But, you know, I was looking at back, uh, you know, looking through some of my previous slides from way, way back on my first uh, school district. I'm talking about 2002, 2003. But you know what was happening even uh, back then? I saw some slides, the first two or three slides were myths and misconceptions about ABAs. That was happening in the early 2000s, right? And I'm not certain mm. if that's what you were asking about. So even back then, you know, uh, our field was receiving some criticism, you know, and of course there is a loud uh, voice, advocacy, rightfully so, right? Rightfully so uh, in that. But uh, those advocates are responsible. A lot of those advocates and especially the parent advocates are, are responsible for our field growing the way it was. So we need to listen to what's going on right now, right? Uh, but talking about the one-sided conversations, are you referring to from us? I, from the well, no, no. I, you know, actually, more like there's there's stuff around private equity and like the good and the bad of, right. of for profits or nonprofits or there's right. know, larger small providers or uh, you know, I mean, there's just a whole variety of things where I don't. You you said an important word there, which is listen. Right. Like it, it feels like there's less and clearly social media doesn't help this. There's less listening happening in our fields. And um, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm overly sensitive to that. You know, I, 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 I certainly get that. And I've been reading a lot uh, about that. I, I came back from vacation in June. You know, I was out for a week and I come back and then I started uh, reading my uh, LinkedIn posts about layoffs and private equity mm. and so forth. I knew that that was occurring over the years and so forth. Um, but, um, uh, I said, what, what is happening? What's happening in the field? You know, at first I was like, oh no, what's this? But I, you know, I'm kind of neutral in that regard. I think that it can be done. I think that there is a purpose, you know, there is, there's, uh, there's, if we have goal oriented, value oriented services, right? If that, whether you are 
funded by private equity or whether you're a small a small to medium mom and pop shop i think that uh, that um, those services can be provided ethically and we've also heard unethically as well right and mm -hmm. even in, you know mm -hmm. it's not just to me it's not just those that are funded by private equity but it is a concern i think with growth okay with the rapid growth maybe that's what we need to look at whether you are you know a, a private provider and want to grow your company i learned this the hard way myself you know in my company years ago uh if you don't have the basics the foundations uh, the systems in place, you're going to get in trouble real quick, right? So, um, and and then, you know, um, that may affect the quality of your services. So I'm glad this is occurring. This conversation is open, but I do think that we need to be objective about this. Let's look at the data, right? Mm. I know the biggest, you know, so, you know, what's getting a lot of news right now is the big companies that have had massive layoffs, cut services, you know, in, uh, abruptly and so forth. That's, but Let's take a look around. What are some of the others that are funded by private equity or, or what have you that are doing some wonderful work expanding our services and so forth? But um, I know lots of you know colleagues here in town that are maintaining and they have maintained their uh, their private practices for years. You know, well over a decade in many uh, cases. So they are doing something right. People keep families keep coming back to them. Right. So I think we need to take a look at some of those guys of the, mm. the small business owners to the medium sized uh, private uh, business owners. What are they doing right? And maybe that's a lesson for all of us to learn. Right. I mean, mm. it's even the same thing from a private practitioner, solo provider like myself. I also have to be sure that I am providing adequate, effective uh, values-based services because, you know, I can easily go astray, right? Anybody like, like ourselves. So, um, mm -hmm. I don't want to, and I, you know, I, I don't want to just put the blame on any one, uh, any one, um, organization or, or, or what have you. Mm. I, so well said. I mean, you sound like a behavior analyst, dude, pinpoint and let's look at the freaking data <laughs> right? and, and let's, and let's figure it out. And speaking of which, like, I mean, what if we were to zoom out? Um, to like a 10,000 foot level and just look at the environment that our field is in right now. You mentioned this idea of value-based care, right? Paying for outcomes instead of paying for hours. If right. a contingency is we're going to get however much money for every dollar of service or for every hour of service we deliver, what's going to happen? That shapes a behavior to build more hours of service. And that's right. why it feels like there's... Um, we have an opportunity to self-examine as a field and figure out a way we get to a point where we are paying for value, where payers are paying for value. Right, uh, right. As opposed to, to And ours. I would love to see some examples. I think there are some that will be coming out soon is what I've heard. And I don't know if it was your podcast or maybe one of the others, but I'd love to see some examples of that, you know, yeah. and, and then, Hey, maybe we start off with those of us who are private practitioners, solo practitioners, maybe that's the way, and maybe we can help lead that after mm. we get some examples and some guidance, right? Powerful. Uh, you're yeah. you're exactly right. The BHCOE has um, its outcomes framework. It's it's published. ICHOM has its autism standard set. So there's there's stuff emerging, right? That, but right. so 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 Lupe, like, um, look forward with me five years from now. How is our field going to look different? I think that we are, you know, potentially after all of this settles down, after we look at the data. Uh, all of these, I think that we're going to be in a better position. We just have to have these conversations, 
we can't take one side or another. We have to look at this objectively. I do see, I do see us, you know, as a field learning from these uh, issues that are occurring right now. And I would hope, I would hope that we begin to, and we hear this all the time, you know, disseminate. Let's look at fields other than autism, but we know that is such a high demand right there too. How can I provide services to other fields as well? You know, and, and that's what I want to, to, to help with, you know, with the remainder of my career, hopefully 15 to 20 more years, right? I want to be able to disseminate that. But I do see us progressing from where we're at. As long as as long as we don't put our head in the sand, so to speak, right? And we are listening and we are discussing these objectively and uh, avoid taking a side, I think that we will continue to grow and hopefully provide some adequate services. I know that the BACB is already looking ahead at you know, training, right? Increasing the training requirements and uh, 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 for future BCBAs. And I think that's a step in the right direction, you know? Uh, so I think that we're, I, I think we're going to be in a better place. We do have to address those criticisms though, uh, uh, from those advocates, you know, the mm -hmm. autistic uh, adults, we do have to listen. What are they saying? What is it that, you know, why are they saying this, you know, and, uh, what, have, what have their experiences been? I think we have to listen to that and, and, and take that into account as a field. Hmm. Well said. What's the one thing, Lupe, that every ABA practice owner should start doing and one thing they should stop doing? I'm going to start off with stop doing. I know that there are providers, thousands of providers that are doing some wonderful work, but stop trying to do everything yourself. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and along with that, and I learned the hard way, you know, uh, in my early practice, stop, you know, it's okay. So start delegating, right? You want to delegate to others. Uh, uh, to, you know, hire the personnel, you know, and now we've got, we've got your podcast, we've got other similar podcasts, we've got Facebook groups, you know, uh, on ABA businesses, collaboratives, and so forth, you know, uh, there are resources out there for you. So I, I would like for you to reach out, I would hope that you can reach out, especially if you're considering private practice, reach out to others who have been in your shoes, you know, but, you know, um, uh, be okay with hiring someone that is going to be fundamental to your business, fundamental to your future growth. And I would say start and continue learning, learning these systems approaches, you know, OBM, you know, I've only recently uh, begun to read that, uh, uh, that literature, and it is so powerful, even within the school settings. So don't try to do everything yourself. Do uh, uh, do collaborate and do delegate and do continue learning about our field and its applications across various, uh, populations. Heck yes, man. Well said. Lupe, where can people find you online? I'm on LinkedIn, you know, Lupe Castaneda. I also have a website, uh, learnwithaba.com. And, or, you know, if you want to, you can email me through there, contact me through there, but my email is Lupe, L-U-P-E at learnwithaba.com. Love it. All right. Are you ready for the hot take questions? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Lupe, you're on your deathbed. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? Aside from family, I think everybody says family, right? That is so rich. That is so powerful for us. But I want to, I want to be remembered for 
reaching across the aisle, so to speak, right? For collaborating with others, for, uh, you know, for um, disseminating with others. I kept I keep saying that, but I think it's so important. I want to play nice with other fields. I want to be remembered for that. You know, hey, Lupe was the one that really brought ABA and uh, and so forth to San Antonio or to wherever I'm at and so forth. And I think that uh, that's going to be a long-term goal. I've got to, you know, continue to try to reach out to others, um, whether it be school districts, whether it be uh, other providers, whether it be related services uh, providers and so forth. So mm. that's what I want to be remembered for. What's your most important self-care practice? Um, outdoors, man, during COVID, you know, I've always been a beach bum. I grew up down in South Texas and, uh, things like that. Shorts and t-shirts, man. And, and, uh, and, uh, uh, sandals. That was, that was my attire for years growing up there. So I've kind of taken that on, but during COVID, of course, during quarantine, we discovered the outdoors again. It's like, Oh man, I miss this. So self-care getting out, getting some of that sunshine, my wife and I, and even, uh, one of my kids will go out frequently. We, try to frequent a, a break about every, uh, a lake actually, about every couple of weeks down here, a local lake. I discovered kayaking too. I love that, mm. man. You know, I love that. I just, I, I do fishing while I'm on the kayak. I'm not a good fisherman. I just throw it out there. It's just, hey, I'm cool. That's my zen right there. But for, you know, of course we, we talk about sleep, but I also like, especially at my age, as I get older, resistance training, I've got to keep resistance mm. training because we do have to be energetic working with some of the kiddos that we work with, you know, kiddos and adolescents and adults in some cases. Right. But um, that I think is a key also to uh, longevity is the sleep resistant training, especially at my age, as I get to, to get older. Nice. What's your favorite song? Oh, I thought about this, man. I listen to every genre, anything from eighties to seventies to, uh, Tejano, man, to Spanish music. But right now, you know, that's been on my mind. And these are, this is an older song is um, Yellow by Coldplay. I love that. It's oh. been in my head these last couple of uh, weeks. And then, of course, this is how varied my listening is. Tim McGraw, you know, it's your love. Tim McGraw, you know, country is like, what? You know, but I'll listen to anything. But those two I've been listening to a lot of, especially on camping trips, man. Uh, so that getting out there in the outdoors and just jamming and being on the water, that's cool. Uh, dude, I, so I am right there with you. Every genre of music is a beautiful genre. Yeah. And I will listen to it all. Coldplay, that brings back memories of the 90s. Not only because isn't their lead singer married to Madonna, who was like, oh, was like my whole, my whole, no, maybe yeah. that was maybe Bush's lead singer. Maybe I'm mixing my bands or metaphors. But oh, Coldplay, yeah. tear, was it No Teardrops from a Waterfall and Vita La Vida, like are two of my, ah, oh, oh, when I want good. happy music, that's what I plug yeah. in. I'm with you, brother. Yeah, oh, the Counting Crows, man. You got to go. I saw these guys and back before they were famous in San Antonio. They're just walking around some small venue during their breaks. Those Ugh. guys. I love just about every song from the Counting Crows. I mean, not, I'm dating myself. That's back in the 90s, but it's good <laughs> stuff, man. Heck yeah, it is. Well, if you can give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, Lupe, what would it be? Slow down. Set some mm. goals. Slow mm. down and set some goals, you know, earlier than waiting until, you know, uh, uh, into your twenties. That's what mm. I was saying. All right. You can only wear one style of footwear. What would it be? 
I've been through the gamut. I told you that I like, you know, I was a beach bum, liked a lot of footwear, you know, sandals and so forth. Right now, when I go out camping, which we do hiking and, of course, kayaking, keen sandals, closed toe, mm. closed toe, keen. I love those things. They'll last for years, man. Uh, also, uh, right now, I just wear clogs around the house. They are so comfortable to slip on, you know. So I'll use, you know, just various types of slippers, so to speak. I mean, they're outdoor slippers uh, without a you know, back strap or something. But those are so comfortable for me. I can get in and out of those. But if I'm outdoors, it's going to be my keen sandals. You know? Heck yes. Hey, Lupe, thank you so much for all you're doing for our field and collaborating for sharing your wisdom. This has been awesome, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, Jonathan. Thanks. And I hope that uh, uh, that we'll continue to grow as a field and learn you know, uh, as we continue to expand. What up listeners? Hey, I got something for you. If you like my building better businesses in ABA podcast, you're going to love the behavioral observations podcast with Matt Sicoria. So I recently met Matt at ABAI and let me tell you, I was just an instant fanboy. Matt's the real deal. His pod is all about stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. So session 191 on his pod is on the behavior analysis of lying. That's right, lying. How awesome is that? Who does that? He also talks social skills, act, FAs, and so much more. His guests include Greg Hanley, Jonathan Tarbox, and other legendary names in our field. And as a BCBA, you can even get CEU credits through behavioral observations. You can find Matt the Behavioral Observations Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy, friends. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA Podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.